Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today we are going to be talking about Wittgenstein, or Wittgenstein if you read it like an American, and his Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, which is a book that is just as bad as the name, but also just as brilliant as the name. Uh, Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. I encourage you to visit tacticalfaith.com to see about all the stuff that we do, the other podcasts we have, blogs, and so on and so forth. You can also look into supporting our ministry through prayer. Uh, we also like money if you wanted to give us money. Check out tacticalfaith.com, and we thank you for listening. And we're going to talk today about Wittgenstein. All right, well, welcome to the podcast. Today, Joel is going to be leading us on a discussion of Wittgenstein. We are simply going to do sort of an introductory discussion today where we hear a little bit about Wittgenstein's life, about how he was a rather odd fellow, uh, how he was brilliant, and so on and so forth. And then starting at the in the next podcast, we're going to start digging into the uh, seven proposition book the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. Um, uh, but today, Joel is going to introduce who Wittgenstein is and maybe tell us a little bit about why we should care at all about what Wittgenstein has to say. And uh, so why don't you get us started, Joel? Okay. So Ludwig Wittgenstein is considered by um, by many to be one of, if not the most important philosopher of the 20th century. The funny thing about that assessment, though, is there isn't a lot of agreement on what exactly he was saying. And he has two main books that were written. One is Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. The other is uh, The Philosophical Investigations, which are dramatically different books. Neither one of them really fit into uh, what we often think of when we think about reading philosophy. Um and they seem to say at times contradictory things. Uh, he wrote the Tractatus it, uh, early in his life. The investigations were pu- published posthumously. Um, and he, he didn't publish any philosophy in between. So the investigations are fascinating. And maybe we'll do a series on those eventually. But we're going to focus on the Tractatus. And uh before we dive into the Tractatus itself, I want to give a biographical sketch of Wittgenstein and kind of set up what was going on as he was working on the Tractatus, what led to the Tractatus, um, kind of yeah, what was going on while he wrote it, because there's some fascinating things that happened during that time. And then once we uh, talk about that, I... Um, I'm going to give a basic setup of the Tractatus for us to understand the big ideas of what's going on in that book. And then, like Travis said, next time we'll we'll dive into the actual content. So quick, or this is a quick biographical sketch of Wittgenstein. There's actually a great book by a guy named Ray Monk called The Duty of Genius. That's a great biography of Wittgenstein if you are curious about reading about just a really interesting person who has a lot of interesting things happen to him. Um, we'll sit, let, let's start at the beginning. He was born into 
um, a family that was basically Austrian aristocracy. Uh, he was the youngest of nine children, and his father's industrial empire was so large that he was considered to be one of the most uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world, probably the most wealthiest man or probably the wealthiest man in Europe, and possibly the world at one point. Uh, he wanted his sons to take over the empire, uh, and so he tried to shape them in his image. Uh, that meant he had them homeschooled because then he could oversee what they were being taught and how they were being taught, and he could direct their education uh, from a more hands-on perspective. And interesting, he was very... Uh, intentional about making music a part of that. He wanted his children to learn to play instruments, uh, not just so that they would be more quote unquote high class, I guess you could say, but because he felt like there was something valuable in about knowing how to um, how to make music. Uh, there was a there were apparently seven grand pianos in the house um, that the kids played on. One of Ludwig's older brothers, Paul, went on to become a famous concert pianist. Uh, he lost an arm in World War I, but he was such a talented pianist that composers were basically falling over themselves to try to, for the opportunity to write left-handed piano uh, pieces for uh, this man to play and perform. Back to Ludwig. Um, his father directed him towards engineering, towards math, and Ludwig showed great aptitude in that. And so he went to the UK to earn a doctorate in engineering. And when he was in the UK working on that, he became uh, entranced by the questions of logic and math, especially questions about the foundations of both systems. And in the UK, it was Bertrand Russell at the time, who was working on his Principia Mathematica, which was this book, The Principles of Mathematics, where it's a long, thick book where he describes what what is the foundation of mathematics? What's the foundation of logic? And uh, Wittgenstein would actually ask him questions that made him have to offer revisions in his books because uh, Wittgenstein would, would push back on it. They became um, friends of a sort. We know a lot about Wittgenstein's thought life at this time from letters that Russell wrote to his mistresses about, or to his mistress about Wittgenstein. Um, Wittgenstein would ask him all kinds of questions that seemed to be about math, but then out of the nowhere, he'd ask something that had to do with ethics or purpose and meaning in life. And the idea of, of purpose and meaning in life was at the core of Wittgenstein's pursuits of everything he was trying to do. Um, and I think, Part of that comes from his family background. He had at least three of his brothers who committed suicide. Um, and you know, there's lots of discussion as to what was going on in those situations. But um, Wittgenstein was kind of a seen as a depressed kind of guy sometimes, often, I guess you could say. But um, he, oft, he also had these um, this great depth of insight that just demonstrated that he wasn't a necessarily a tortured soul, um, but he was just someone who wanted to understand. Um, through his discussions with Russell about the foundations of math, foundations of logic, and 
just philosophy in general, Wittgenstein started to construct some of his own ideas. He actually took a break from his doctorate in engineering to start writing them down. And this stuff actually became, or it was actually the foundation of the Tractatus. And um, while he was away, his father passed and split up the inheritance between his children, making Wittgenstein one of the richest men in Europe. His father was so wealthy that when he died and split up his inheritance multiple ways, each of his children were among the richest people in Europe. Well, World War I breaks out soon after this. And we have Wittgenstein, who is someone working on his doctorate in engineering, who's one of the richest men in Europe, and you would think he would manage to avoid military service, um, or if he had to be in the military service, he would be nowhere near the front lines. Well, he was never drafted because he immediately volunteered for the army. He wanted to be on the front lines. He wanted to be someone making a difference. And they kept him back for years, for a couple of years, um, using his engineering ability to help develop things, fix things, all of that kind of stuff. But he became, he was such a pest about it that as the war progressed, they had no, felt like they had no choice but to put him on the front lines. And it was on the front lines of World War I that Wittgenstein was working on the Tractatus. And so it's not that the Tractatus was this, I mean, when if you read the Tractatus, it reads like it was written by someone who is completely out of touch with reality, who probably doesn't have any friends, who probably has never had a conversation with a human being that wasn't incredibly awkward. Amen. <laughs> but this book was actually finished on the front lines of World War One, and um, he was captured as a POW at the end of the war and spent nine months in a POW camp where he also finished it. So this philosophical work was written during a war, not just you know, as a war was going on, but on the front lines of a war and in POW camp. Um, upon his release, he had finished the book. He felt like he'd answered all the questions of philosophy. And he sent it to Bertrand Russell and said, you can do what you want with this, but here are all the answers. And I'm going to go do something else with my life now that I've answered all the questions of philosophy. Um, and knowing what we know about Wittgenstein, he was completely serious. He felt like he had actually answered all the questions of philosophy. Um, he actually decided he wanted to go into the mountains of Austria, become an elementary school teacher. And he gave away his fortune, splitting it up among some of his siblings. Not all of them. He excluded one. Um, why? We're not exactly sure, but... Needless to say, he was, he had nothing and he was going to, because he felt it was important that everything he has was some, would be something that he had earned himself. He did not want to have fortune because of who his dad was. He wanted to earn everything that he had. So he's a teacher of elementary children in the mountains of Austria. Russell gets the Tractatus, reads it and says, this is brilliant. This needs to be published. Who's going to publish 
a philosophical work by someone who's doing their doctorate in engineering, who has no philosophical official background. And so Russell said, I'll write an introduction and then we'll try and get it published. And with Russell's introduction, it got published. And people all around Europe started reading the Tractatus and it it just exploded. People were fascinated. People were discussing it. Um, people couldn't get enough of what was going on in the book, trying to, to understand. Uh, some people really misunderstood it. Uh, one of them being uh, the uh, Vienna Circle um, and the Logical Positivists. And Wittgenstein actually would try and show them that, but we can talk about that once we get into the text. But... Um, So this becomes a philosophical rage, and the author of this important philosophical text is an elementary school teacher in the mountains of Austria. Well, Wittgenstein was not a very popular teacher among the, the, the people, um, in part because when he had promising students, he would go to their parents and say, I think you need to send them to a boarding school. They have too much promise to be stuck here in the mountains of Austria. And what the parents heard was, you need to pay to give away some of your help. And uh, as you can imagine, the parents didn't appreciate that. Wittgenstein was a bit of a harsh taskmaster. He was known for uh, very liberal use of the ruler on children. Um, and as the Tractatus became more and more popular, and as the parents became more and more disgruntled, uh, Russell and, and some others came to where he was and said, you should really be come back to the UK and be a philosophy professor. And eventually Wittgenstein agreed, but because he didn't have a doctorate, he didn't have a bachelor's degree in philosophy. How could they justify making him a, a professor? And so they, uh, they decided, well, he, the work he had done with Russell was equivalent to his coursework and they would allow his Tractatus to be the dissertation, which when you think about the fact that, you know, everyone in Europe who was a philosopher was reading this, it's kind of a, a, a given that he's going to pass. But they have to go through all the formalities because that's how the education system works. And so they sit down and Wittgenstein defends his Tractatus to Russell and G.E. Moore, another hugely important philosopher of the time. I mean, arg arguably, Bertrand Russell and G.E. Moore and Ludwig Wittgenstein are three of probably the five most important philosophers of the first half of the 20th century. So they're in this room discussing this book. Wittgenstein was actually really frustrated with Russell's introduction. He's like, you missed the point entirely, but it got it published. So that, I guess that's a good thing. Um, but they have this discussion for half an hour. Wittgenstein, he's done with it at the, you know, after half an hour. He, on his own initiative, no, nothing from Russell or more, he stands up, walks around the table, pats him on the back and says, it's okay, guys. I know you'll never understand it. And walks out of the room. That, that, that gives you a picture into the kind of kind of person Wittgenstein was. He, he was supremely confident in his ideas, which can be wonderful and terrible at the same time. And it, it, it was, you know, I, I think it led him... To, it was wonderful for his philosophy because he said things in a way that no one else had said things and wrestled with things in a way that no one else wrestled with them. 
It was like he was so far out of the mold that he was able to say something worthwhile into the discussion because of how outside of things he was. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this was the only philosophical work Wittgenstein published in his lifetime. And it was published before he became a professor. Now, he was writing. He had ideas. Um, we actually, some of his posthumous works that we have, um, like Culture and Value and um, and others, or Uncertainty, th those books come from notes of lectures that he was giving. So his students, after he died, uh, collected their notes and kind of put it into more prose form and published those. The investi philosophical investigations he had actually pretty much finalized before he, he died. But he felt like, he felt so confident that no one would really get what he was doing that he wanted it, he wanted to wait till after he died for it to be published because he didn't want to have to try and defend, defend it from ridiculous questions in his mind. He's like, I don't have time to mess with ridiculous questions. They can, they can read this after I die and then I don't have to spend all my time dealing with their, their inability to understand. Um, so when, when he died in 1951, he was at the age of 62. Um, it's also worth noting that Wittgenstein's sense of service continued throughout his life. Uh, when World War II came, happened, he was in the UK, and he actually helped serve as, as kind of a, um, of a, of a nurse. Uh, you know, he helped with the medical part of things, you know, cause he wasn't someone who could go out on the battlefield anymore, but he volunteered. He, he didn't want to not be a part of it. He, he felt like he needed to serve. He felt a strong sense of duty to, to his fellow man. Um, some of the things he says in other, in those collections of, of his, uh, notes from his class or collections of, of notes that he took in books are really fascinating and show someone who really wrestled with a lot of things. And, um, you know, it's, I, I, my hunch is that, um, if Wittgenstein were alive today, he'd have a podcast and he'd say things and he probably would, uh, get himself in trouble because of, he would just speak off the cuff, but he was a man who was always thinking and, and the way he thought through things was, um, was different than most of the philosophers, pretty much all the philosophers at the time, and opened up new thoughts about language, new thoughts about perception, new thoughts about meaning that uh, heavily influenced the rest of the 20th century in philosophy, even if people didn't quite understand what I think Wittgenstein was getting at. And given his frustration with everyone on trying who, when he thought no one would understand it, I think Maybe I understand, maybe I'm onto something because I read Wittgenstein a little differently than I think most people do. So that that's that's his biographical sketch. He, his last words, and I think this is interesting, or interesting, is he said, tell them I've had a wonderful life. So even though he had all of these rough things, he, he a lot of people thought he was depressed. I don't think he was quite a tortured soul, but he felt like he had a wonderful life. Um. So that's that's a biographical sketch. Um, you you want to chime in with anything, Travis, before we move on to the Tractatus? Yeah, well, um, I mean, there's a lot of interesting questions. One, one, maybe one of the most important things, and I've I've said this to you several times, and I say this to my students a lot, is that 
a lot of people perceive philosophy as a kind of activity that people do when they don't have to deal with everyday life. And that that may be the case now, but that hasn't been the case throughout history. Uh, all the way back to Socrates and before, I mean, Socrates lived the life of a, you know, he was a soldier for a time and so on and so forth, all the way up through Nietzsche, who also was in, uh, who was also in a war during the writing of his first book and so on and so forth. There's those who, who do philosophy are not necessarily people who just have leisure time and they like to show off like maybe contemporary, you know, undergrads in philosophy and they want to go say cool things and, and argue with their parents or something. These are people who are, who have touched some of the hardest parts of everyday life and they're trying to understand what's going on. And so, uh, clearly that's the case with Wittgenstein. I mean, he, he seemed to have a terrible life, uh, despite what he said at the end, it's looked like he just confronted a lot of trouble, but he, maybe he found something, uh, um, I guess, uh, I mean, I don't. I don't have a lot of questions in terms of his biography. There's going to be a lot of questions when we get into the into the Tractatus, uh, because the book is. And I, I made jokes about it being one of the worst books ever written. Um, and I don't mean that in terms of content. I mean it's written so uh, so tersely. Uh, yeah. It's like he doesn't waste a single word, and so it's written like a like a pro like somebody would have programmed a computer and they're yes. putting in just what needs to be written. And so I guess maybe, maybe you could, you could briefly talk a little bit about the Nate, like, why is it written this way? What was he, why was he writing it like this? Uh, I don't know if you're going to get into a lot of that when you start talking about it. I know uh, you can talk about it being, you know, the different pro how there's seven propositions, but there's a lot of stuff in between. Mm -hmm. um, but why did he write it the way that he wrote it? So, Wittgenstein, at the time, was working closely with Bertrand Russell. And Russell, like I mentioned, he was working on his principles of mathematics, foundations of mathematics. And um, when you do proofs, you kind of want to, you know, give, you, have, you give your, your idea and then you give your explanation or your, your proof of the idea line by line. And at one level, that's kind of what Wittgenstein was doing in the Tractatus. It, you know, like, like Travis said, that there are seven propositions, but then there are, well, it depends on the proposition. There's one prop, the, the final proposition has no explanation. It's like, this is the conclusion of everything that came before it. Now there, now like the first proposition has about half a page of content, and then you get to the second proposition, but that has like, 15, 20 pages of content before you get to the third proposition. And it, it's, it, you know, each proposition has a different amount of justification and the way you have to read it, it, what Wittgenstein is doing is, and this is what, part of what I mean by he thinks differently than everyone else, but yet kind of does it in a way that is trying to fit the format of everyone else. You have to read all the stuff under a proposition before you get to the next proposition as somehow pointing back to the proposition itself. So he, he gives, so like the book is, is formatted in a way where it's like one period proposition one. And then he says 1.1 1 
and then that's supposed to be like a primary justification. And then 1.11 would be a justification of 1.1. Um, and and then the, then there are some times where he, he'll like go 2.01. And that's supposed to be back to sort of a an explanation of the proposition before we get to the justification of the proposition. And if you, most people don't have the time or discipline to do this, but if you can read it such that you, you read the proposition and then you read all of the, you know, so say you read proposition two and then you read 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, however, however many there are after that. And then you go back and focus on 2.1 and read, you know, and, and if you follow it that way, it's a little easier to see what's going on, but it's an incredibly disjointed way to read a book. It's an, it's an incredibly, um, it's not a, a friendly read to those of us who like to read prose. Um, but there's a sense in which Wittgenstein at this time, remember he was a, he was a doctoral student in engineering. He was interested in questions of math. And so it, to him, he was just setting up his proof, I guess you could, could say. And so by, by using so few words, but trying to make every word count and every, uh, and numbering his propositions to show how things are, are support the other statements, he's, he's trying to give us a lot in a short way. He uses his format to, to tell us, um, how how we're to read it but it's so hard to read it that way it makes it a challenging read in general because of 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 this format but i think for wittgenstein like i said he was he, he was using his mathematical mind he was he was trying to do it in a way that would um would be friendly to to the proof mindset that he's used to working within and how was so you mentioned a little bit about Russell and Moore and that rather uh, a humorous interaction with two philosophical giants of the day when he kind of patted them on their heads, not literally on their heads, but uh, you cute little fellas, I'm sorry, you'll never understand. Uh, but how has his how how was the reception of the book? You mentioned that people were reading it. Uh, people were finding it very interesting, but at the same time, the greatest philosophers of the day weren't understanding it. So there, there's a, there are people, were people following it? Have people been misusing it? Uh, kind of yeah. how was the reception generally? So, um, there was actually a school of thought that read the Tractatus and said, Hey, this is perfect. This totally gives us everything we need. For meaning, and that was the Vienna Circle, the logical positivists. And I guess I can share this. I'll share the story now. Uh, but uh, with Wittgenstein being originally from Austria and Vienna being in Austria, um, there were times where he would go back to, you know, his his to his, his live, be with his family for a few months. And at one point, he the Vienna Circle wanted you know invited him to come and speak to them. And so he he's like, okay, if I come and speak to you, you, I can say whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. And they're like, yeah, yeah. So the logical positivists had the mindset that 
everything that has meaning has to be able to be verified, empirically verified. If it can't be empirically verified, then it's nonsense. So something like, um, well, anything about God or ethics is, is nonsense to, to them. Um, you know, very, you know, logic is wonderful. Math is wonderful. Um, you know, we're all about statements that are clearly true or false and we can verify their, their truth or falsity. Well, Wittgenstein realized they were missing the point. And one way he tried to show them that they were missing the point was when he would go speak to them for, you know, each week, he would read them poetry. And to a logical positivist, a poetry that, you know, a half hour of poetry is basically just saying blah, 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 blah. And, but Wittgenstein was trying to show them that Obviously, there's, there's, to him, there was value in poetry. There was something important going on in poetry. So if you read his Tractatus and came away with the conclusion that poetry is meaningless, you missed something. Um, and, and that's, that's a, a big thing in, um, in the Tractatus. It, he, you know, he, it, the, I joke sometimes that it seems like, some people read the Tractatus and their copy was missing the last five pages. And this is, this is a big, big thing about the Tractatus. The Tractatus is reading the Tractatus is kind of like watching the sixth sense the first time for the first time. If you've seen the movie, the sixth sense, I mean, it's been out more than 20 years. I feel like I could probably give you the spoiler to ruin it, but I'm not going to, I'm just going to tell you, there's something that happens in the last few minutes of the film that changes the way you understand everything you saw before it. And it, 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 it's like, Oh, this, this is what's going on. This, this, wow. And, um, the Tractatus is the same way in the sixth sense. If you go back and watch it a second time, you're watching for the signs that were there that pointed to that ending. But because you didn't know that ending was there, it was so easy to overlook them that you did. And so when you watch it a second time, a third time, fourth time, I mean, I think I've probably watched that movie six or seven times. And every time I catch something more that I had missed previously that points to what's going on, ultimately going on. Same thing with the Tractatus. It was actually, when I read it, it was the second time I read it, I got to the end and it clicked. Something clicked that said, I have to go back and read this a third time. And reading it that third time was when things started to jump off the page at me that I had completely missed before. I under, I mean, that first time through, it was mildly painful. Second time through, it was still mildly painful because if you don't get what he's, what the ultimate conclusion is, you're going to miss, you're going to read it the, the wrong way. You're going to read it in a way that you, that you think where you're looking for what you think is going to be there as opposed to what I think he's put there. And so you know, if, if this was a podcast that, um, well, 
because let me back up but because it was so painful to read that first time and second time i'm not going to try and walk you through it on the on a misreading of it and then give you the surprise spoil you know at the end because frankly you're not going to stay with it with the with the podcast you're going to skip the the next episodes so i'm going to tell you now what his point is what the spoiler twist at the end is so that you'll come back and say, okay, I want, I want to go through, I want you to go through this and tell me what he's doing. I'll, I'll be it in a very weird format in a, um, in a way that, I mean, the, the, the fact that it's set up in that proof kind of way makes you think he's going to be talking about math. He's going to be talking about logic when really he does, but it's, that's not the big, big stuff. What's going on here. There's some really big things going on that um, he's almost hiding. If you don't know how to look for it. So here's the twist. The twist is not that meaning is only about logic, only about empirical value. Wittgenstein's going to give us something called a say show distinction. So there are things that you, where you can say meaning and there are things that you can show meaning and if you can show the meaning, you can't fully say the meaning. If you can say the meaning, you can't fully show it. Sometimes language is going to show us meaning rather than say its meaning. And in fact, most of language is going to be about showing meaning instead of saying it. And he ends the Tractatus. This is the seventh proposition. He says, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. What he's saying is, if what you think meaning is, is about what can be logically verified, maybe even empirically verified, and things that can be said, but not shown. If that's what you think is most important, then stay in your lane and don't try to talk about all the things that have meaning that can only be shown. In, in a sense, he answers all the questions of philosophy by saying, if this is how you're going to define yourself philosophy, stay in your lane. There's so much more to the world that you need you 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 cannot say if this is how you're going to define yourself. Which when Wittgenstein writes his philosophical investigations, he writes much more um he calls it a photo album because he's giving just these snapshots. It's like one or two sentences to sometimes one or two paragraphs and then he goes to the next numbered and you can't always see the clear connection. Sometimes you can, but he sees it as like a photo photo album, which that's not, that's a photo album is something that shows you what happened. It doesn't tell you what, what happens with words. It shows you what happened. And so Wittgenstein's, I think what he's saying is philosophy is about showing meaning about pointing and saying, see what I see. Can you can you try to see it like that? Can can I try to show you what I'm seeing rather than just read these propositions and it'll all be obvious to you. And this whole idea is if you if you've been paying any attention to our uh, to our podcast, and if you have, thank you and I'm sorry. But, God bless you. Crowns yeah. <laughs> in heaven. Crowns in heaven. <laughs> right. Then you'll you'll see, you'll begin to see how much this has been, this Wittgensteinian kind of idea has influenced us, or particularly influenced Joel and through Joel influenced me. <laughs> and so 
and and a lot of our our stuff comes together in the in a similar sort of way. Uh, talking about the same the the say show distinction, the idea of evaluative outlooks, uh, the way that value plays a role in the way that we think about things, and really in some ways the limitations of what philosophy and logic and rationality and science can do is built upon this recognition that there's that there's something that's that's beneath all this. Um, that can really only be shown. But this is something we're, we'll get into as we move into the tr- Tractatus, where I think we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, any final words uh, besides please don't just pick up the Tractatus and start reading it unless you are ready uh, to bear some pain. Uh, that was actually what I was going to say. <laughs> I, I guess if I'm going to say anything, if, if what I've said has made you curious... If you want to check out, like I said, The Duty of Genius by Ray Monk, it's a great biography of Wittgenstein. He's just an interesting person. I think I, I, I hope I've communicated that um, even if he's really odd, he's interesting. And you you might find that to be an interesting read to know more about this person who writes some brilliant philosophical stuff. Great. Well, this is a, again, it's a crazy difficult book. Uh, it's, it's difficult to read, but... The point that that Wittgenstein gets to, I think, is of tremendous importance, uh, and not just for for eggheads sitting in their ivory towers, but for uh, for the average everyday person, and for Christians in particular. Uh, this might be really important when we're thinking about everything from uh, communicating the faith just in general to apologetics. So, bear with us, and hopefully, you'll see where we're going. But for today, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. Have a great day and thanks for listening.